Sir Balfour and the team of Brass. I'm Carson Sestouli. This is Fangraphs Audio, my guest on this edition of Fangraphs Audio, making his weekly Monday appearance. It's his weekly Monday appearance, the managing editor of Fangraphs.com. His name's Dave Cameron. And what follows, as he does uh, each week, Dave Cameron endeavors to analyze all baseball of particular note this week. Chris Bryant, Cubs third base prospect Chris Bryant, is now a member of the parent club, the Chicago Cubs, playing for them. There are a number of scouting reports regarding him, and of course the numbers are there from his minor league performance. All of it adds up to suggest that he's probably a strong player. There are some implications there about playing time, its relationship to free agency, etc., etc. We don't uh, ignore that. Uh, also considered here the Reds' bullpen, which has featured probably more uh, Kevin Gregg than is ideal. The surprising Mets, surprising for the quality of their play thus far. Uh, that's a good reason to be surprising. And also because I, I make him discuss it, college baseball, uh, why is it less popular than college basketball or college football as a spectator sport? All of that considered uh, discussed in what follows. Those who commit to listening uh, to the entire episode as well will be rewarded by finding the context uh, for this particular and short and particular utterance by Dave Cameron. Probably the asteroid. Once again, that's... Probably the asteroid. In this fan graph, it does feature managing editor Dave Cameron. And it begins right now. Uh, well, not everyone. I'm sure there are sick people. How about, how about the, the people with whom you most frequently associate? Uh, yeah, they're all doing fine. Good, good, good. We're healthy here, too, just in case you were wondering. I was not. Okay. My dog is a bit of a vomiting situation sometimes. Yeah, that seems to be a dog thing. Liberty actually, she woke me up at 6.45 in the morning this morning and vomited on our carpet. (laughs) Do you use the, uh, what is it, the carpet magic or something, or... Yeah, we have some kind of green bottle of something that, you know, the wife purchased that oh, she yeah. told me to spray. So. Now, we we found a good – there's a good spray that it has like a – it's a – it is made – it's not made from – what do we mean? It has enzymes. It has enzymes that attack the problem somehow. Yeah, that sounds like a, a thing that you want sprays to do. Okay, good. The uh, Baseball, of baseball <laughs> note. <laughs> Very good. Let me ask you a, a question to begin uh, that may, this may be a short answer, um, but I, and I, and I have some suspicions, I think, but I don't. I'm not usually particularly good at this sort of discursive thought. And the question is this: uh, College football is quite popular. Qual- college basketball is quite popular. College baseball, I think, has a following in certain regions of the country, but I don't think gets anywhere near the TV ratings, uh, for example, that those other two sports do. Why is that? Because college football and college basketball feature players who are uh, of higher quality relative to the professional ranks that people are used to watching than, co- than college baseball. I think, uh, you know, it's not that uncommon to see college basketball players who can, you know, be good NBA players right away or college, uh, the best college football players, you know, step right in and become quality NFL players. And the best college baseball players spend two or three years in the minor leagues. Right, and so you don't. So they they, they come into the, or they're drafted, and you don't see them for at least a couple of years. Well, well, I think it's not even so much that. It's that you know, when speaking about the popularity of the college game, it speaks to the disparity in the talent, right? So if you're used to watching major league caliber pitching or pitting or whatever, 
you have become accustomed to a certain level of performance. You like to see 95-mile-an-hour fastballs and big breaking balls and guys who can hit and, you know, uh, a certain style of play. And the style of play in college is so different because the talent pool is so much lower because so many of the guys who would otherwise be playing college uh, baseball uh, are in the professional minor leagues. They're, so, they're already in the minors. Yeah, right. So I think you basically have... What the equivalent of college basketball and college football is the American minor league system in baseball. Right. So yeah. So the guys with the biggest tools. Yeah. Who would be? No, I don't necessarily. I don't remember all the names of the. But like, so let's say Anthony Davis is now an NBA player, but he played. He played uh, at college for one year, right? Yep. Do, do you know this Anthony Davis? Yeah, the eyebrow guy, right? Yeah, right. And uh, yeah. and anyway, he uh, he's ob- he's like you just look. I mean, he's physically talented, but he's got like guard like skills, and he's what six eleven or seven feet or something. Right. That's a good package, and he's now a really good NBA player in just a couple of years. But yeah. he had to go to college for a year. And so, if you wanted to watch, so if you were watching college basketball, you could watch someone who was pretty obviously going to become a good NBA player pretty soon. Right. Right. Mike Trout did not have to go to college. So, you know, you you never got interested in college baseball because you wanted to watch Mike Trout play. Right. Chris Bryant, uh, Chris Bryant went to college. Yeah, I mean, right. So players do go to college and become really great prospects in college, but they're generally not great prospects when they get there. So they develop into great prospects while they're in college, but you're generally, in, barring some kind of disaster in the you know negotiation process, most really good prospects don't go to college. Uh, the... Let's see the what the NBA draft is two rounds. Is that yes. right? And yep. if the NFL draft is that like eight rounds? Seven, I think. Seven. What would happen if? Yeah. What would happen if the baseball draft were only seven rounds? <laughs> you know, I think it's actually been bandied about of like right now the <laughs> bonus pool system, the allocations only cover the first ten rounds, and everything after that is kind of a free for all. And there's been some suggestion that the draft should just be 10 rounds and that everything after that should just be, uh, you know, sign whoever you want because realistically those guys are organizational players for the most part. You're just filling out your minor league system. You need, you know, arms to throw the ball to your prospects and you need, you know, good character guys to keep them away from the hookers and cocaine. So that's basically what you're doing is drafting, you know, decent guys who throw 85 miles an hour and will be good influences on your real prospects in rounds 11 through 50. And occasionally you find a gem. You, you get lucky and you pick a guy in the 37th round who becomes really good, but that's uh, mostly luck. Uh, so and there's presumably some that, that, could happen, that could happen if you were signing free agents too. Right, exactly. I mean, the, so the question is, do we actually need a formal draft in order to, to allocate these players, or would the teams that think they have a real advantage in scouting just you know, be able to say, okay, well, we found all these really good 37th round talent guys. We're just going to offer them a little bit more money as free agents. Uh, I think the fear is that maybe the Yankees would just go get all the guys who would be the equivalent of 11th rounders or the Dodgers or whoever these teams are. And the, you know, the Marlins would just get all the 50th round guys. Uh, but you know, that, I think that that's not such a big deal considering the gap in talent between the 11th rounder and the 50th rounder is pretty small. Yeah. That's, uh, well, so it seems a lot of the, uh, the rules that, um, we've seen Added certainly to the most recent CBA, they're they're a lot, many of the rules. Well, of course, they're designed to keep. Uh, well, in theory, they're attempting to keep salaries down. Uh, but another one, it seems, is um, and this kind of goes hand in hand with that first idea, is they're trying to com- trying to close potentially um, loopholes that create competitive advantage. But even competitive advantage for teams that do not have that much money. And I'm curious, what is the in, what is the inclination among 
other teams, if 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 you're worried about um, teams being able to exploit certain loopholes, why don't you just exploit those loopholes too? Well, I think Major League Baseball isn't concerned about creating competitive advantages as much as they are concerned about keeping costs down. So they don't want anyone exploiting loopholes in the draft system that involve uh, spending more money because then it, essentially if you have one guy spending more money, it rises the price of everybody because in order to keep up, all the other teams like feel like they have to spend more money and they follow in their footsteps. So we've seen this on the international side where, you know, a few years ago, um, I think it was the Rays decided to just blow their uh, international signing allocation out of the water and spend a crazy amount of money and take the penalties. Uh, and the Rangers did this as well. And then a bunch of teams now, the Dodgers and Yankees and Red Sox, and a bunch of teams have gotten in on this and said, oh, yeah, that's a good idea. And so now you have basically everybody or at least half the teams in the league ignoring their uh, bonus allocations. And so I think the league is interested primarily in uh, getting everybody to stay under their signing limits because they want to keep costs down, not because they're trying to be fair to the low-revenue teams who need an advantage. Wait, is there a different – I mean – it seems to me the only difference between passing those rules or those those sorts of rules and collusion is the fact that they are explicitly stating that you can't pay guys more as opposed to privately stating it. Is that true? Well, sort of, except for the fact that the players that they're colluding against are not part of the union. So the union has agreed to collude with the league <laughs> against future union members who are not current union <laughs> members and say, we don't care about these people because we're not representing them, so we will sell out their rights in order to achieve uh, you know, cost certainty for the owners and some kind of benefit in return for the Players Association. So if you, if you have multiple powerful entities doing it, performing that action publicly, it's, it's no longer co- collusion. Right. They're, tell, they're telling you they're screwing you, so therefore they're not screwing you. Yeah. Uh, it's hard for the it's hard for the amateur players to get to really get back at them, isn't it? Or even uh, the minor yeah. leaguers, I guess. Yeah, right. They, I mean, they basically have no recourse. Right? Like, there's no alternative. There's no other major league they can go play in. They could go to Japan, I guess, but yeah, yeah. I mean, they they have no leverage. There Which was is a, why they make a thousand dollars a month. Or, there have been you know, talks. They make at the low winners. There have been talks, right? Like of other, I mean, uh, other players' league or you know, third, like well, I guess third league or uh, alternative or parallel major leagues have been attempted before, but they always seem either to get shut down pretty quickly or integrated pretty quickly. And I don't think there's even been like rumor of one since the '60s or anything, something like that. Yeah, I mean, what like the USFL was maybe like the last alternative professional league that had any kind of traction, and that was in the 80s back when the NFL was not the juggernaut that it is today. Uh, the NBA doesn't have any, like, serious competitor and hasn't for since since they merged with the ABA uh, in the 70s or something. And I don't, yeah, I mean, baseball hasn't had a serious alternative in 50 or 60 years. So, right, the leagues that we have today are the leagues that are going to be there, barring some kind of, like, massive scandal that causes... Uh, you know, uh, just a total crisis that is uh, hard to predict. These are the leagues we're going to have playing these sports. Do you think, what do you think is more likely? Um, uh, Earth is ended in some – or people on Earth, the population is severely depleted by something like famine or asteroid or uh, rising seas. Is that more likely or is the another professional baseball league uh, becoming more popular than Major League Baseball? Probably the asteroid. <laughs> I think, you know, like, to, to imagine what it would take just from a structural standpoint to come up with a competitive 
product, you first you need somewhere to play, right? Like this is kind of one of the built-in advantages. Is there essentially 30 major league ballparks in the country that you people would want to go see baseball games at in a large city, and they're taken. So uh, these things cost hundreds of millions of dollars to build. The capital costs in order to build one are astronomical, which is usually why they get the taxpayers to pay the bill. Uh, so you have to have some significant revenue streams, not quite guaranteed, but pretty close to guaranteed in order to, to fund the building of one of these things. And you probably need at least eight for any kind of reasonable, even like, you know, uh, spring or fall league or something. So, you know, realistically, you probably want more like 12 or 16 to start out. Uh, now you're looking at like, you know, seven or eight billion dollars in stadium costs. Who's going to fund that? That's, yeah, so that's interesting. One, it, it seems like as, uh, in this case, a league, as it becomes more well established, the gap between any prospective competing league and the more established league becomes, becomes wider, right? Yeah, right. So, uh, I think we have a, a significant barrier to entry problem for an, any other league that wants to challenge either the NBA or the MLB or, or the NFL is it's just the startup costs are so high because the, the, product that the these established leagues have put in place makes it very difficult for anyone without you know crazy amounts of money to compete so here's a here's a question that is not expressly tied to baseball but i might i think is related and i was thinking about it in my head today i live in an area where uh, property values are not particularly expensive right and there are also um i was thinking there are some there are not particularly many good cafes around here and i was thinking what would it take to have a good cafe would they be able, for example, to use the nicest beans that are available from, a, you know, from like, say, Stumptown? Stumptown's a sort of popular um, coffee roaster uh, that makes nice beans. <clears throat> There's, there are Stumptown locations or there are cafes that use Stumptown beans in New York City where the cost of doing business, uh, property values are quite high. The cost of doing business is high. But presumably, it, the cost of the beans for the cafe in New York City is the same as the cost of the beans in New York. So does it, or sorry, in, in this rural area of New Hampshire that I live. So is it actually an advantage at that point to be running the business in New York? Because you're already dealing with more money all the time anyway. And, but this overhead expense is, is identical as to that rural location in New Hampshire. Well, it's not though, right? I mean, you have to factor in transportation costs. I mean, just to the bare minimum, someone has to get you those beans on a regular basis, assuming you're going to use them and sell them and go through them at a decent clip. So you either have to find a delivery service or the manufacturer has to schedule some delivery to the middle of nowhere where you live and, and, uh, have like predictable orders and schedule times that they can follow. So you have like some frictional, uh, cost just from delivering the beans to where people are not that don't exist in a, you know, the beans are already in New York because there's, whatever, four million coffee shops selling these Stumptown beans. They don't have to get them anywhere. They just have to take them, like, a couple blocks this way and a couple blocks that way, and they can put a warehouse there, and they can get a lot of efficiency from just having a population center. Uh, that efficiency doesn't it doesn't exist where you are, so the, I think the cost of getting the beans to where you are is higher. Oh, so it's actually, so even though, even though the uh, cost <coughs> of living is cheaper here, it, the cost of doing this, of running this particular business, relative to the the income, would actually be would actually be higher. Yeah, I think. I mean, it's, I think Alaska is like the great example of this, right? Like Alaska is a very remote place where there's not a lot of people, and so you'd think, okay, well, you know, most times when you're kind of in a remote 
rural area, costs are very low and things are cheap and, you know, there's just not a lot of money, there's not a lot of industry, there's, you know, not major corporations. Uh, but Alaska is actually one of the most, especially like, like, uh, Anchorage and Juneau, some of the most expensive places in the country because everything has to get shipped in. So if you want, you know, anything that isn't ice or salmon, uh, it has to be sent to you on a boat, and it takes a long time, and, like, there's uh, a lot of extra trans- transportation costs to get basically anything up there that isn't already frozen. I like the anything that isn't ice or salmon. Yeah, that's all they have in Alaska. The whole, yeah. whole thing is just fish and ice. Yeah, it, but I you know in some places I don't know if this is true of Alaska. Isn't there a large division? Like if if uh, say Alaska makes a large percent of uh, its whatever its GDP or whatever yeah, G- GDP, yeah, is is a lot of that comes from sale of fish. Isn't it possible that the best versions of that will be shipped away? So even in a place where the fish is bountiful, you you as a citizen there may not even have access to it. Yeah, I mean, theoretically, uh, there should be enough really good Alaskan salmon that they're not going to ship all of it to the states, but I, I, my wife went and ran the Mayor's Midnight Marathon. She did a half marathon. This was actually before my wife. She was my wife. She was my fiancé at the time. So, you know, they... There's one day of the year she where she wasn't just running away down. from you. Is that no, why she? No, was, yeah, she, she wasn't. She was thinking about it maybe while she was running, but she did eventually come back. Uh, right. So like one day in Alaska, the sun doesn't go down, so they do a, a marathon. Starts at like 10 o'clock at night, but it's still bright and sunny out. Uh, and so my wife went to Alaska and did this half marathon thing, and she was like super excited to have like really high quality Alaskan salmon in Alaska. And she said it was like not any, not any better than she's had anywhere else in the country because right, the good stuff often gets exported. Yeah, and I think that is that is that effect maybe even more exaggerated in in poor countries. I I know like in in East Germany they would uh, they would send they used to send all of their best products away, or it would be like reserved for like the heads of state. Does that sound possible? Yeah, right. I mean, I think that seems like a reasonable. You would think that in a, a country where most people are poor, they're not going to take a item that has significant export value and then sell it for a low cost because the, the locals don't have money. Yeah, okay. All right, no, nothing to do with uh, – uh, well, who knows? I, my guess is that something we just discussed could have a, could provide foundation for a baseball-related conversation. I don't know precisely what. So let's talk about Chris Bryant instead. Okay. Does that seem reasonable? Sure. Uh, I mean – we started. I almost started talking about Chris Bryant uh, with uh, Kylie, who's a podcast with whom I just uh, published a couple minutes ago. And uh, I was like, "What do you, do you want to say anything about him?" He's like, I, "What do you want me to say, Carson? What do you want me to say?" Um, he's uh, he's good. I've written about him a number of times. Is that? Do you feel the same way? Do you, uh, but now he or do you feel like now that he's graduated to the major leagues, is he uh, maybe part of more of your domain than Kylie's? Uh, I mean, I think you know. The hope would be that it's not that Kylie can't write about guys once they're in the major leagues or that I can't write about guys once they're in the minor leagues. Like, hopefully if there's good things that Kylie wants to say about Chris Bryant, he feels free to do so. Maybe I will encourage him to listen to this podcast as a, uh, uh, the, I don't know, the permission to write about Chris Bryant going forward. Uh, but, uh, yeah. Uh, there does seem to be some kind of like handoff of like there's prospect writers and then when a guy stops being a prospect then they don't write about him anymore which is a little strange I think uh, but I do think you know there are, there is something to say about Chris Bryant that isn't just he's good I mean I think you know we've written 425 articles about Mookie Betts since opening day uh, and I think we'll probably find similar kinds of ways to write about Chris Bryant frequently uh, yeah so Chris Bryant um, he was what uh magically recalled 
Um, Magically, yes. He was exported from, or imported, I guess, from <laughs> Iowa. They, the city of Chicago found a luxury good in a small rural town and brought it to the big city. Where yeah, there we go. <laughs> you, you've successfully integrated uh, this foundation into it. And um, I don't know, what, is, there any, is there any reason to believe, is there any indication that uh, these, let's just to, to, to confirm this. Is there any indication that his, whatever, 10, 12 days in the minor leagues aided Chris Bryant in any substantial way? No. Okay. There's no yeah. indication. Right. The Cubs manipulated his service time. It was obvious and transparent, and they didn't even bother to, like, hold him down beyond one extra day past where the limit moved. It was a very clear ploy to get his service time moved back and hold his free agency down by a year. Uh, and, you know, they said all the right things so that they can't get sued, but that's very obviously what they did. Although maybe actually inconveniently, it seems as though Tommy LaStella and Mike Gold actually sort of did get hurt at the same time. Yeah, it wouldn't have mattered. I it mean, those guys could have, like, come down with the bubonic plague in Game 3, and Chris Bryant would have stayed in Iowa. <laughs> Especially if there was the bubonic plague going around. <laughs> at that point, they might have really been like, we're not calling you up the bubonic plague in our clubhouse. Yeah, that's right. Yeah. Yeah, they, they just... They would what they would send everyone down to to AAA Iowa, <laughs> right. well yeah. well known to be uh, to be <laughs> immune from the bubonic plague in the court yeah, fields. They, they can't get MLB TV or bubonic plague. <laughs> That's right. It's it's actually a certain plague that is spread by by watching MLB TV. Right, and because Iowa's blacked out from almost every game in the country, they're immune. Yeah, that's right. All right. Well, so that's one good thing. So at least one good thing about living in Iowa we've discovered today. Um, he's uh. Uh, the I don't know the early returns. He's got 14 plate appearances. I don't know what the early returns are. Well, the super early returns weren't great because opening his first day he looked terrible against James Fields, swinging at everything and chasing pitches out of the zone and showing that like his contact problems are legitimate. <laughs> but you know that was one game. The next day he got on base four times. So uh, right, I mean Chris Bryant I think is not a known entity in that he's you know only been in the major leagues for four days or five days whatever. Uh, uh, but we have a pretty general uh, idea of what his skills. He's going to hit the ball a long way. He's going to swing and miss a lot. He's going to draw walks. Um, he'll play defense at third base, but probably not at a great level. Uh, so, you know, the question is all kind of the magnitudes of those things. Like, if he swings and misses like Russell Branion, then that's a problem. If he swings and misses like, uh, you know, Bryce Harper, he'll be fine. And, you know, anywhere in between is kind of reasonable to expect. Um, or, you know, like he could be Giancarlo Stanton or he could be Chris Davis. We don't really know. But we'll find out. The... It's interesting you mentioned about his first plate appearances. I think that I saw pointed out somewhere, or I remembered in my own head, that he had had, I think his like, first ever professional appearance, he struck out like three times or five times. Was, uh, five times. Yeah. In short season ball. Right, pretty ugly. And uh, But he quickly recovered to to be dominant in that league, and then uh, in, in, in double A and triple A after that. Um, is there, what do we know anything about the early performances of players who later go on to be good. I would assume, um, just from what I know about baseball players, that there would be there'd be more swinging going on. If I I know that if I were call-ups to majors, I would be swinging more often because I'd want to would be trying to, I don't know, show off or I would just be anxious to do that. Yeah, I mean, I don't think we've, <clears throat> I don't, I haven't seen a study that says that the swing rate of guys making their major league debut is X percent higher than, you know, on any other days, but it logically makes sense. It doesn't mean it's true. But I think it does seem to pass the smell test that you would say <clears throat> you probably don't want to try and draw a walk in your first big league plate appearance. Like, you probably want to go up there and hit the ball and, you know, take your hacks and 
Uh, I would imagine, you know, just speculating, the, the swing rate for guys making their debut is pretty high. Yeah, that's right. Well, did, I mean, did we, there, there are sorts of things uh, or something along these lines that uh, it was suspected at one point and then verified, I think, by Jeff Sullivan, was it not? Was the uh, strikes thrown on the first pitches of opening day? <laughs> yeah, they're like 99% fastballs. Right. Did, have we, did we see any uh, either deviations from that? From pitchers this year, do you know? And then did uh, did anyone swing on the first pitches? So Jeff actually wrote about this because Masahiro Tanaka's first pitch of the year was like an 83-mile-an-hour slider, and then the second pitch was a splitter, and the third pitch was a splitter, and then he got a strikeout. His first at-bat was like three pitches, three up, three down, uh, and uh, no fastballs. And it was unusual because almost everybody at the beginning of the year throws a fastball, and Tanaka did not, which kind of went on to the uh, conversation about whether he's confident in throwing fastballs. Um, but yeah, I mean, Tanaka did an, the unusual thing and, uh, he got a really good result from it probably because the batter facing him said, Hey, it's the first to bat of the year. I'm going to get a fastball. And then he didn't get any fastballs. Yeah. So he really, uh, he really figured out it's just having to deal with all the other plate appearances. Right. You, basically the pitcher has one huge game theory advantage, uh, <laughs> once and then it goes away. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. It just goes away immediately. It'd, yeah. be, it'd be easy if you, nice if you could f- find a way to, create that feeling of opening day uh, for every one of your starts, but it seems like it would be difficult to arrange. Yeah, you'd have to have, like, the really long, drawn-out introductions, and, like, they'd have to, you know, come stand on the field and shake hands before every at-bat, and then the games would be six hours long. Right, yeah. So it would be just, like, a regular Red Sox-Yankees game. Yeah. Uh, is there a time of time of game update? Uh, I think it's shorter. Down, I think we're down, like, nine minutes. Oh, okay. And is that just all from... The, from from standing in the box? That's part of it, probably. Pace of play, I think, is down about a second per per pitch uh, between pitches. But I think we're also just seeing, like, run scoring is down again this April. Uh, it is down in most Aprils, but is down even relative to the last few Aprils. So when you have low-scoring games, you have short games. So it's a combination, I think, of the, the pace has improved slightly uh, and where we don't have any runs in baseball anymore. Okay. All right. Well, that's uh, let's see. Uh, just a couple more things about which I wanted to ask you. Um, one is um, one is the Reds bullpen. It's uh, really bad. I saw you mention this via um, social media platform Twitter.com. I think you were making a uh, let's say a Cameron-esque quip. Uh, you said that what the the Reds had reached the ninth inning and therefore were allowed to bring in their one good relief pitcher. Yeah, I think a few times this year they've uh, gotten to the eighth inning with a lead and given the ball to Kevin Gregg, who was last a useful major league pitcher around the time that the Statue of Liberty was delivered to the United States. Uh, It's been approximately as long. Uh, And Kevin Gregg has been predictably terrible uh, and blown several of those leads. Uh, but they, you know, the, the they have a role as Chapman, and then no one else you should ever want to give the ball to in a high leverage situation. How did? Kevin Gregg did not play a lot in the majors last year. I think he was released last spring when he, like, uh, this either was last year or the year before. He still thought he was a closer, mm-hmm. and then he wasn't going to get a closing job, so he, like, threw a fit, so he got cut. And then everyone said, like, well, you're not even really good enough to pitch in the major leagues, and so he didn't. He pitched in the minor leagues and was bad there, too. It seems, uh, now, it seems to me that it's not a great idea to give um, that kind of pitcher, a lot of high leverage innings, and yet um, it would also appear as though he has he's responsible uh, for some of that team's higher leverage innings up to this point. 
Yeah, I mean, I think this is one of the problems with the Reds, and I, I think the Brewers are kind of a similar thing. There's a couple of teams that, you know, even the Pirates are in this mold, but they're the best version of this kind of team. Um, is the Edel Central contenders are very stars and scrubsy. Like, the, the Reds have some very good players. Obviously, Joey Votto's having an amazing start to the year. Uh, Billy Hamilton, when he's healthy and playing really good defense and getting on base and stealing bases is, a, is an impact guy. Johnny Cueto's one of the best pitchers in baseball. Um, you know, the top end of the Reds roster, pretty good. Devin Messerocco, when he's healthy, is, you know, was an all-star last year. Uh, finished in the top ten on my MVP ballot, at least. No other ones. But, you know, I thought he had a pretty good year. Uh, and then you look at, like, players 6 through 25, and it gets ugly in a hurry. Last night, playing the Cardinals on Sunday Night Baseball, down 2-1 to one in the ninth inning. Uh, they got the tying run on base, and with one out, they set up in succession Brian Pena and Skip Schumacher, who ended the game. And if you're down by a run in the ninth inning, even in April, and you have some injury problems, and you're relying on Brian Pena and Skip Schumacher, you probably have some roster construction issues. Hmm. And uh, well, how have these come about? Well, I guess you you addressed this uh, just before the season started, and I, I think and I don't know if this is um, part of part of this is a symptom of of that problem, where the the Reds are sort of trying to do a thing where they compete and rebuild sort of simultaneously. Yeah, I think the Reds couldn't decide what they wanted to do this year, and part of it is because they were hosting the All Star Game this year, and I think that there was probably reluctance and maybe even a maybe even a logistically um, uh, or logically relevant one in order to say, look, we're hosting the All-Star Game, uh, we're, our TV contract is coming due in a couple of years, being bad on purpose is not a good idea right now. <laughs> uh, which is, you know, probably okay. Like, that's not a terrible decision to make. The problem is that they didn't do anything to make themselves good either. They got rid of Matt Latos, which looked like a pretty good idea, um, uh, but they didn't necessarily replace him in the rotation with anyone who you would... Uh, uh, want to give the ball to if you were a contender. They trade away Alfredo Simone, which, you know, as a trade I actually liked, because they got Eugenio Suarez, who could be a nice piece for them. But again, they didn't replace him in the rotation with anyone useful. They didn't upgrade their bullpen in any kind of way. They didn't upgrade their bench. Um, so they basically left kind of the core of a roster that could be okay if everyone was healthy and had their best possible year, but had absolutely no margin of error. If anything at all goes wrong, and so far, Messerocco's hurt. Uh, Billy Hamilton didn't play last night. Uh, the bullpen has imploded. Like, the, things have gone wrong, and we've seen that, like, when things go wrong, the Reds have no alternatives. Uh, this was a roster that was basically uh, built to win 86 or 87 games in the best possible scenario, and in a scenario where everything doesn't go right, they're probably more like a 70 or 75 win team, and Cueto and Chapman are getting traded after the All-Star game. It, especially with the with the relief situation, aren't these aren't these guys aren't they supposed to be fungible? Yeah, aren't, I mean, shouldn't I, you be able to find a relief pitcher? Is that? I think like one of the things that's interesting is like the Dodgers. I think are maybe the best example of this, right? Like everyone's going to look at it and say the Dodgers have a two hundred and seventy million dollar payroll. Of course they're good. Uh, they should be good with a two hundred and seventy million dollar payroll. They have a huge margin for error. They cut Brian Wilson, who's making ten million dollars a year. Uh, Brandon Lee, who's making eight million dollars a year, is out for the season, or probably at least he's out for an extended period of time. And it doesn't even matter to them. Like they don't miss those guys at all. Uh, but if you look at like what the Dodgers' actual bullpen is right now, Kenley Johnson's on the DL. So their their bullpen is Joel Peralta, who I think they got for two or three billion bucks from the Rays uh, because the Rays didn't want him anymore. Uh, then it's uh, Chris Hatcher, who they got as a throw-in in the Marlins trade in that Howie Kendrick uh, D Gordon deal. Chris Hatcher is basically a 
converted catcher nobody who finally had his first good year in the majors at age 30, and they got him as a nothing. Uh, then they have... Uh, uh, Yimmy Garcia, or Jimmy oh, yeah, Garcia. Yimmy Garcia, yeah. All right. There's a guy who's just been putting up good numbers in the minor leagues forever, but has never been considered a prospect, and now all of a sudden he has like a 15 to 1 strikeout walk ratio in his, in his, uh, uh, kind of start to the season. They have Paco Rodriguez, who was, you know, kind of a similar thing. Adam Libertore, who they just called up from the minors. Carlos uh, Frias is around somewhere too. Uh, you know, Juan Nicasio. I mean, this is like a bullpen full of castoffs. Like, Jansen's hurt. Uh, they don't really have, you know, veteran high-paid setup guys, and their bullpen is still really good. They've got Pedro Baez, and then they just have a bunch of these guys who throw hard, throw sliders, throw strikes, uh, and they're not, not that hard to find. But the bullpen, the Dodgers, you know, spent the offseason collecting like seven or eight or nine or ten of these guys, and they've put together a pretty good bullpen out of it, where the Reds, you know, find Kevin Gregg. Let me tell you a thing about the Dodgers and their bullpen. Uh, number one in the majors in war, which is, you know, by some accounts may not be the best way to judge bullpen, but it's our way, and if you're number one by it, that's probably a good sign. Uh, also regarding FIP uh, minus, which is, of course, uh, fielding of him pitching relative to league and park, also number one. I guess that would make yeah. sense because they're first in war, but that's, yeah. uh, but ex-FIP, they're also, uh, not, let's say, let's say they're the number one. Shall we say they're number one? <laughs> they are. Making that up? They are number one. They have a 62 okay. except one of the best ERAs as well. That's my yeah, point. I, I think uh, all these guys that they've collected, Hatcher and Garcia and Baez and Paco Rodriguez and Peralta and J.P. Howell, I mean, they're all, like, useful in their own way. If they're used effectively and they're not used, like, four or five days in a row, mm-hmm. uh, they can mix and match, and they're not, you know, with Jansen out, they're not really tied to a strict role. So some days Chris Hatcher pitches the ninth inning and Peralta pitches the ninth inning and then Howell pitches and Nicasio pitches. I mean, they just basically are... Uh, bullpen by committing their way into a nine and three record. And you know they all have all those pitchers, with the exception of Joel Peralta, uh, all the pitchers in their bullpen have a strikeout rate above one, one per inning. Yeah, they strike out a lot of guys. And I think in watching them, uh, they seem to have collected a whole bunch of guys who throw ninety four at the top of the strike zone. Like uh, I think Jimmy Garcia is a an extreme fly ball guy. Uh, Paco Rodriguez. These guys all pitch kind of in that slice of the top of the zone where you can get swinging strikes. Uh, but it's also, uh, you know, close enough to the zone that they also get calls. So they're not like burning sliders in the dirt and walking everybody. Uh, they're, you know, basically pounding the very top of the zone with stuff that's hard to hit. That's great. That's good. That's great stuff. Good for them. Uh, last thing I want to ask you about. Why is there talk about the Mets firing their manager if the team the is Mar- 10 Mar- Marlins. Oh, the Marlins are figuring. Why? Yeah, did you did you not read the article? No, I thought it said the Mets were going to fire. The, the Mets were the team who just beat the Marlins in four games in Queens, and so therefore the Marlins are thinking. Oh, the about Marlins should think manager. about uh, they should think about firing their manager. No, they shouldn't. They should think about firing their owner. Oh yeah, but that's harder to do. That is difficult to do. Yeah. <laughs> it's generally called resigning or something. Yeah, that's right. Uh, you know, I think the Marlins uh, once again have. Uh, looked at a mediocre roster and convinced themselves that it was really good, and now they're blaming Mike Redman for the fact that you know their pitching staff is not good, and the, you know they were counting on a bunch of players who have name value who aren't actually all that valuable. Is one of them Matt Latos? Is one of them yeah, Matt, Matt Latos? Is just Latos? not good anymore. Yeah, it's just not good anymore. And Henderson Alvarez got hurt, and they didn't have pitching depth. And so, you know, this is just not a great team. Uh, I think we have them projected as about a 500 team. So you, you know. A 500 team going three and ten to start the year is not that surprising. Yeah, yeah, they they they've had and Latos is a is a um and is an exception to this as is Dan Heron. But last year they just had an entire team of players who could throw hard, but had almost no secondary pitches. Yeah, they really like velocity. Yeah, they do. They do. Yeah. 
And yeah. I guess because they had what they had Tom Kohler. Yeah, and, and Henderson had, Alvarez and Nate, Jared Cozart. Nate Iavaldi, yeah. Yep. Yeah. Right. And they, uh, they like 98 straight fastballs. Right. One of those players is on the Yankees right now. Yeah, Iavaldi. Yeah. Iavaldi. What's he doing? Do you know? Uh, he's doing okay. He's kind of doing his normal underperform his peripherals thing, which he's uh, been good at for his career. Yeah. All right. Good job, Nate Iavaldi. All right, you're done. <laughs> okay. You're thanks. done. Is there anything? Did, did we miss any big things? Uh, well, the Mets are 10 and 3, and, uh, you didn't even mention them. But I wrote about them today, so well, if you want, said, yeah, you want to read about the Mets, then go read about the Mets. Yeah, well, we started to, but it's because they caused, they caused the Marlins to think about firing their manager. Right. But, you know, beyond that, they're interesting in the, the fact, like, the Mets are, you know, probably not a great team, but maybe in line for a playoff spot. Well, how's that Wilmer Flores doing? Let's check that out. That's he's, important. He's oh. doing Wilmer Flores things. Yeah, he's he is a, actually. He's got a league average, uh. League average batting line, and, you know, not a good defense at short, but not, you know, sinking his, sinking the team by himself. That might be a post. What do you think about, how is Wilmer Flores at short so far? Question mark. How's that? Uh, it would be a post. Yeah. It would I'm, probably be a post you would write. Seems like it would be. The, um, you know who doesn't like it when you have a question as a title is Robert, Robert Sanchez. Sanchez. yeah. I think he's, a, I'm gonna say this, I think he's dogmatic about it. I think he's dogmatic about a lot of things. Yeah, he, I think he is. He's got, cause I think he went to uh, Missouri for journalism. Yeah. Those guys, they got, uh, they got sticks in their craw. I don't even know where the craw is, but he's got a stick in his craw. Or something yeah. else. There's something else in his craw? I think you have something stuck in your craw. Maybe, maybe something stuck in your craw. He also makes, yeah. he also makes silly, uh, fantasy trade, trade proposals. Oh, does he? Yeah, and he's like really a bully about it. I'm sorry. He's a sweet guy in person though, you know? He, he is. Just in, he's difficult to deal with in virtual terms. Alright. Uh, thank you, Dave Cameron. You're welcome. That's Dave Cameron, the managing editor of, uh, Fangraphs.com. I'm Carson Stooley. This has been Fangraphs Audio.